Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 142. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Here for another rousing edition of Monorail Radio Disney Plus Roulette. And uh, we did get some numbers this past week. Thank you to our friend Jimmy. We took your numbers and landed on 1964's The Moon Spinners. Everybody knows, if you're a Disney fan at least, that Haley Mills had a huge Disney contract. I have never heard of this movie in my life. Same. And I'm going to apologize in advance to the listeners because we do have a big anniversary for The Parent Trap coming up. So we're going to be reviewing that next month. And if you didn't believe that roulette is completely random, well, there you have it. Yeah. (laughs) And you can go find Jimmy and verify it with him. For sure. I'd never heard of this. And I, like like I was saying, I, that's sort of a surprise because Haley Mills, you know her for The Parent Trap, you know her for That Darn Cat, Summer Magic. You know, you can kind of like ramble off the list of Disney movies that she did. So with that being said, I was cautiously optimistic going into this because how is there a Haley Mills film that we had not even heard of yet? It's one thing to have not seen it, but to have never heard of the movie, I think... I'm, I was cautiously optimistic. I wonder if that has to do with the fact that this was sort of like her last Disney movie because she's teetering on adulthood. I mean, she's around 17 or 18 when they made this. And I'm wondering if it's because, you know, she wasn't able, not, not to say that she didn't do a great job. She did. But, you know, that childlike charm is gone and I wonder if that's why this isn't you know held to the same standard as the rest of her films right or even like a Pollyanna which might be the one everybody knows her for this was her fifth I mean yes but you've never seen Pollyanna and that's not why everybody remembers Pollyanna well it's gonna blow your mind okay I, I believe you this was her fifth of six Disney movies actually that darn cat was the last one and so you wouldn't think that that would be the case you thought it would be this but yeah this is sort of at the tail end of the child star I mean it, it sort of happens to all of them at some point I feel like they sort of just fizzle out for a little while and then sometimes they come back I mean, she did but that's not always the case with anybody or with everyone. But let's just get into it right now. I want to get into the conversation uh, regarding the Moon Spinners. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code Monoreal10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. and shop for all of your straw charm needs. Set on the island of Crete, Nikki, Ferris, and her aunt, Francis, travel to the island of Alunda. Initially, they aren't given a place to stay until a young boy named Alexis convinces his family to allow them to rent a room at their hotel, even though his uncle's Stratos is firmly against it. That night, they meet Mark Camford, an Englishman who had previously been skin diving in the Bay of Dolphins, a body of water hiding a sunken treasure. That night, while spying on Stratos, Mark is shot by Lambus, who also works at the hotel and falls into the bay. When Nikki learns of Mark's abrupt exit, she becomes skeptical and later finds him injured in a church where he is hiding. He asks for food 
clothes, and brandy, but refuses all other help. Upon hearing that Nikki had taken her aunt's first aid kick, Stratos sets off to find her and Mark, and eventually finds Nikki, but not Mark. He heads back to the hotel to retrieve his guns, and even his family starts to question his motives. Mark finds Alexis in the hills and sends him to find out if Nikki and Francis were still in town, but instead she is found tied up in a windmill where Alexis sets her free. After fighting off Lambus, they take refuge in the Temple of Apollo, which is filled with cats. There, he tells her that Stratos stole jewels from the Countess of Fleet, which were under the care of Mark, and for whom was accused of stealing them. He believes someone in Fleet tipped Stratos off, so he is attempting to find the jewels, which he thinks are in the Bay of Dolphins. They are found by Anthony Gamble, who puts them up in his villa in Agios Nicolaos. I probably butchered that terribly. But secretly, this is Stratos's partner, because of course it is. When they <laughs> learn that Madame Habib is traveling on her yacht into Greece, they conclude that she is going to buy the jewels from Stratos. Gamble's wife, Cynthia, then drugs Mark in order to send them to a hospital in Athens and throw them off the track. While en route to Athens, Mark regains consciousness and sets off to intercept the sail while Nikki continues to pursue Mark in an effort to stop him so he can receive medical attention. Because he has not once received medical attention this entire time. Nikki steals a boat and heads to the yacht. She boards it and tells Madame Habib the truth about the jewels, but at first, she does not believe her. Stratos retrieves the jewels from the bay, but is tracked down by Mark, who is later tossed into the bay and left for dead. Stratos arrives to sell the jewels and finds Nikki, but Mark arrives with the authorities and has Stratos arrested. They get the jewels back in order to return them to the Countess. It is sort of a very abrupt ending um but i i mean we're gonna talk about all of this but before we even get to the end let's just circle back around to the beginning this is 1964 they have an opening musical number not it's not a musical but they have you know the soundtrack it's it's an it's a song that plays over the credits and it reminds me of those classic openings to a James Bond film where the chorus of the song is basically just the title of the film you're about to watch. Right. It's a big cinematic song. Um, it's interesting you say James Bond. It sort of reminded me of Casablanca a little bit, mm -hmm. except without the war looming. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the weird thing is we're talking about, you know, this is the tail end of Haley Mills' career with Disney. But this came out before Indiana Jones. Well before Indiana Jones. But it reminds me so much of it. That's why I feel like this came out so much later than it actually did. Well, I think that this is something we're going to have to ask ourselves towards the end of this episode. And, and perhaps it plays into the question of does it hold up. But there are certain elements that Indiana Jones pulls from this. I think there are certain elements that even... James Bond pulls from this a little bit. Definitely. So as as far as I'm concerned, this is a movie that I knew nothing about, yet somehow it seems like it was very influential in its time. So I think that's a question we're going to have to answer 
when we answer the question, does the film hold up? I wonder if Spielberg had it buried because he doesn't want people to know how much he ripped off of it. I mean, there is there is literally one line, and we'll talk about it in a little while, that is just a straight ripoff of in, that the Indiana Jones just pulled, like, the exact line. It was, like, and not like, oh, I could see what... No, it's the same exact line. It's like how Vanilla Ice sampled the song and he swears he didn't but it's so close oh yeah 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 why can't i think of the original song um uh under pressure yes sorry i was drawing a blank yeah it's the same song it's like a 16th note of a difference and he swears it's not the same thing that's what's happening here with this line for sure now the film opens with Haley mills and her aunt on a very crowded tour bus and she's got a fish swinging in her face because she's got a fish swinging in her face. <laughs> Question. Because this immediately reminds me of every bus that you take to a Disney park. So. It may as well have been a popcorn bucket. We're going to play a game. Fish or stroller? Do you want the fish <laughs> in your face or do you want to be getting beaten with the stroller? Okay. Okay. I get where you're going, but to me, the strollers are worse when you're actually walking around the parks because they are used as battering rams. And don't try to tell me any different. No, the the strollers are weaponized. You know what you're doing. For sure. So on the bus, the strollers aren't that bad. It's It depends on what you purchased as a souvenir that day because that's going to make your bag heavy. And that's really what's going to hit people. Yeah, like if you bought the electric monorail set with all of the um, with all of the ornaments and the buildings that it passes through, and you're swinging that thing around in like the extra big Disney bag, or a coffee mug, because even though it's wrapped up, you're gonna feel that. Yeah, but I will say the Disney bus is better because a it means that I went to a Disney park that day, and b they do such a good job. For as much as this scene drags on, that fish truly is vomit-inducing. Like, you really feel for Nikki and her aunt, even though, yes, they have put themselves in this situation getting on this bus, and, you know, they're traveling, and this was completely voluntary, even though they didn't know the man with the fish was going to be there. They just do such a good job. It's practically smell-o-vision. Yeah. um, I think you said it right. I think the scene drags on, and I, you're going to hear us say that a lot when discussing this film. That's a phrase you're going to hear us say a lot. Right. And what bothers me about it here, even though the fish looks gross, they could have spent, a, I mean, they spend a lot of time here, but it could have been giving us backstory because you get a quick throwaway line about the aunt that she's a musicologist and she travels around finding folk songs. Right. Which, for a single woman during this time, it just raised a million questions that she's got this adventurous job. She travels a lot. I mean, she's the coolest aunt ever for taking her niece along with her. But I would have just liked to learn a little bit more about what her life is like and how she ended up there. Mm-hmm. So now we get into town and we meet Alexis, who is definitely Greek. Yes. <laughs> he, he is definitely, his accent gives him away. If you're he not is, sure where Crete is, you're going to know now. Yeah. He's definitely Greek, right? Right? No. I mean, yeah, it, it's supposed to be Greece, but 
this actor, basically all they did was he dropped a couple of letters in some words and he dropped a few words all together. It kind of like short round. It kind he talks like short round in the Temple of Doom. Definitely. So, yeah, that kind of gives him away right away. But we get to this town and Stratos is immediately so intriguing to me because they don't want to put them up. We don't really have a reason why they don't want to put them up in their hotel. This is a family owned business. They have open rooms. They've already put Mark up. So it's not like they have some bias against the English they just don't want to put them up. And Stratos, they say, after he came back from London, he's been aloof. He's been different. The way that he spies, the way that he snoops, and especially in the scene where he's rummaging through their things like when they go down to have dinner with Mark, he is so intriguing because you don't know anything about him, but you feel drawn to him because you don't know whether or not you can trust him. That I, That is one of the successes of this film, Initial, I mean, you learn quickly that he's the bad guy, but at first you're not so sure. Right. You know something's up with him. And I think any inkling of not being able to trust him sort of gets softened, softened because he's reading this book about astrology and he believes in the stars. So there's just something intriguing about him, but you don't know which, he, which way he's going to go. The brilliance of this entire scene is that it all takes place during a wedding. So they're burying this character that you're on the fence about. They're weaving in and out of giant crowds. They're throwing rice. They're taking pictures. And all the while, we're following Nikki and her aunt as they're trying to beg their way in to getting a room for the night. And all of these elements about Stratos's character are being peppered in as well. So again, the scene is sort of long, but in this case, I kind of think it works because they're hiding a lot in plain sight. I thought that this was going to be a film where Stratos ended up not being the bad guy so much as it was that he was trying to protect a buried treasure because you hear that there is this buried treasure in the Bay of Dolphins and Crete has all of these legends and all of this folklore. And like you said, he's into the astrology. So I wondered if he was there like protecting something like was it that he just cared so much about his town's history, his country's history? Is there something sort of supernatural to this? And of course, none of this ends up being true. But I think that was the brilliance and the intrigue of how they introduced him into the film. I think that would have been a far more interesting story, though, if there was something that he was protecting and maybe flipped to the bad guy in the last second because he is likable at first. You're drawn to something about him. And if we had misplaced trust in him the entire time and he flipped it, that would have been a great ending. For certain. For certain. Disney goes for it in this movie because they jump like right into the action because... As much as you don't really know if you can trust Stratos, you don't know if you can trust Mark either. And when Mark follows Stratos down to the bay and Lambus gets the rifle and he shoots him. I mean, you wa- you're seeing somebody get shot in a Disney film. I was sort of taken aback by how much they were willing 
to go for it here and sort of make this truly into an action film, or at least that's kind of how it was being presented early on. I agree with you, but when you think about something like A Treasure Island or A Swiss Family Robinson, I don't think that this is too far out of the realm of anything that they did in those films. What is striking to me, though, is how they set this up, that Stratos is out on the boat, so he's got the spotlight on Mark, and they could have easily cheated this with some cutaways and played with the shadows a little bit, but they didn't. They just, they literally shine the spotlight on him getting shot at. The difference between Treasure Island and Swiss Family Robinson, I think in Treasure Island, you're just predisposed to knowing that you're going to see swashbuckling pirates, you're going to see conflict and combat. In Swiss Family Robinson, that was mostly self-defense. I mean, this is a straight-up attempted murder. (laughs) So I think that's why this one strikes me as so very different, but I think you're onto something as well because they do put the spotlight on him right away. I mean, they are putting the spotlight on him being the victim of this crime because up to this point, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's a crime. Right. Okay, so what's pretty amazing to me now the next morning Nikki wakes up she was supposed to go diving with Mark and she goes to meet him sees that his room is completely cleared out Stratos has gotten rid of everything and the story that she gets is that he checked out in the middle of the night just up and left he's gone we don't know where he is he didn't leave a note he's just gone to put this in current terminology he ghosted her but stratos went to such lengths to hide this and and to really sell this story of course she doesn't believe it at all so she goes and she's looking for him and she does find him in this really beautiful church um and so it's sort of um it, it's sort of a harsh visual, for a lack of better term, because she she has f- basically followed his trail of blood. And there's blood on the floor, there's bloody handprints on the wall, and then you find him sort of in a crypt, and he's got this gunshot wound. It's not what you expect to see in one of these beautiful, like, Greek Orthodox churches. And if you've ever been to one... I mean, they are masterpieces of art. Well, worth noting, that was actually a set build. So they did not, in fact, bloody up an actual church. Most of this film was shot on location in Crete, but some of it was shot at Pinewood Studios in London. Um, And this was one of those sets. But they did an incredible job because I thought it was the real thing, except for the, the trap door to get to the crypt. Right. I thought they were using an actual church. I think it was amazing that when Stratos finds her, and this is the first time, well, it's not the first time because we saw him shoot Mark, but you kind of didn't know why he shot Mark. Is he trying to protect some supernatural jewel sunken treasure nonsense? No, he is just a cold-blooded killer. And you see, when he realizes that Mark is in that church, he almost becomes glossed over. Like, he is just, like, possessed, and he is on a mission So it's great acting. But I found it pretty amazing that he had the opportunity to kill Nikki and he didn't do it. 
Instead, he ties her up and leaves her in a windmill. Well, I think part of that is because he's written her off as just like a young, dumb girl. Because her lies are so terrible. They're so bad. Forget that this whole sequence from when she finds Mark in the crypt to lying to Stratos drags on and on and on. And I think the reason that this movie feels like it drags, I realized, is because there's a lot of just talking at each other. These characters aren't doing much while they're speaking. There's not a lot of props. The sets are amazing, but they're just not interacting with them. It's just dialogue heavy and very little action. Part of that is because Mark is like bleeding out the whole time. So he can't yeah. do a lot. He can't really move. But that's what makes it feel longer. Yeah. And it's like listening to a six-year-old try to lie their way out of a lie. And the more <sighs> she lies, the worse it gets and the more outlandish it becomes. Um, but I think you just used the perfect phrase. These are not characters that are talking to each other. They are just talking at each other. A lot of the dialogue doesn't really feel genuine. A lot of the dialogue does nothing to really push the story forward. A lot of the dialogue doesn't even do a lot to flesh out characters in uh, context or in any sort of backstory. This is just like they're you're you hit the nail right on the head. They are not conversing. They are just spewing words at each other. A lot of that is in the pacing too, and I think this was a big critique that I had about Treasure Island is that. A lot of the films in this period, even though this was like 10 years apart from Treasure Island, they lock on those wide shots. You don't get a lot of the punching in with the close-ups, although there's a fair amount. And I mean, granted, only having watched this twice, I'm just trying to, you know, recall from memory. I think there's a fair amount of close-ups of Haley Mills just because, you know, she is supposed to be... I mean, she's, she's the title character and... You know, she is always the charming one who we're supposed to fall in love with. So they frame her as such. But during these long, drawn out conversations, there's just not a lot of cutaways. It, it's almost like watching a play in some aspects. Mm -hmm. So Stratos does basically nothing to her other than tie her up. But he does manage to threaten Alexis to keep Sophia off of his back. Sophia is his sister. It's Alexis's mother. She runs the inn that he fronted the money for illegally, of course. Um, and she is really starting to question him. She doesn't believe that he's just going quail hunting. She believes he's up to no good. And he threatens his own nephew to keep her off his back. So he's really being set up to be a, a dangerous villain, except not so dangerous. I mean, obviously, he's not going to bump off Haley Mills when he has the chance because now your movie's over. But... The, I mean, the fact that he did, you know, we t we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, how it's, I'm going to tie her to the railroad track, Zorro. It's like this, <laughs> this kind of happens here as well. Um, and I wouldn't have minded, there was a scene where I thought maybe he would lock her in that chapel, in that church, and trap her in there. I would have rather him done that than tie her up and leave her in the windmill. Right. Because now we know the root of all of Tim Burton's problems. Yeah. There is only way, there's only one way into this windmill if it's not a door. And the door to the windmill is locked. Now, neither Mark nor Alexis have the capability to pick a lock or 
to break the door down. It's a very old door. I'm sure it wouldn't take much. This is where the movie really kind of starts to come off the rails. The only way in to the windmill is by going on the windmill. And through the window. And through the window. And this is a game that the kids play in Crete. We know that because Alexis says, I'm really good at this game. I get too old for this game. Dr. Jones. I mean, look, who's to say if, if that's what the kids do when they're bored? You know, and that's and that's where they derived this from. Uh, well, actually, no, this was a book, too. We did forget to it, mention yes. that. This was based off of a book. Uh, but regardless, I'm not buying it. I appreciate what you tried to do with the throwaway line, but I don't buy this. No, you grab it and you're just swinging and swinging and swinging until you can get yourself into the window. And Alexis gets himself in the window. Because Mark can't do it. He can't hold on because he's got a bullet hole in his arm and he somehow hasn't bled out or gotten lead poisoning yet, which is within itself amazing. Right, because we don't know if the bullet actually came out. Nikki tried to get it out, but he wouldn't let her. So we know it's lodged in there. So this is not going to go well. No, and it definitely didn't graze him because it's a hole in his arm. It's a hole in his arm. So Alexis goes through the window. Alexis cuts her free. She hugs him. And he goes, no time, make love. We gotta go. And then, after Alexis tries, or Alexis gets out, and now it's time for Nikki to get out, and Haley Mills, it um, wasn't really her, but the character is holding on to this windmill for what feels like five minutes. Because she just won't let go because she's afraid to let go. And she just swings and she swings and she swings and she swings. When she finally lets go, Mark catches her. They collapse on each other. And again, no time make love. And I said, oh my God, this is, this is no time for love, Dr. Jones. This is a, this is the line from Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. Steven Spielberg stole a line from this movie that people have forgotten about and repurposed it in one of the most popular films of all time. And in that particular film, it's probably the most memorable line in the movie. Which is what leads me to believe that this is not a coincidence. I I don't think it can be. I think this is something that you know, I would have to assume that he saw this, thought it was funny, and was and, and tried to repurpose it. No time for love, Doctor Jones. Well, aside from the egregious line stealing, which has nothing to do with this movie, by the way. Yeah, I just no, have to throw that no, out. There. That's not a knock at the Moon Spinners. Uh, it's it, it should be called windmill spinners, really, because that's where we spend the most time. And they're literally the way that they're hanging. They they don't even drop in the way that you'd expect them to with gravity. They're hanging on, so they're going upside down on the windmill. Like this is something that should almost happen for comedic purpose. 
Yes. Like if it had happened in the absent-minded professor, I'd say, oh my God, this is hilarious. Right. And that's why, like, I don't know if they were trying to lighten the mood with it. I think that they were, because you know Nikki's going to freak out. You know that she's not going to grab the first spoke as it's coming by and it's going to take her a minute. In this case, it takes like five of screen time. And then when she finally does it, how can you tell me that hanging onto this thing and going upside down is better than just dropping? I can't. I also can't explain how Stratos doesn't hear or see them as he is standing at that windmill. It's a moving target. And she's screaming. And screaming. And screaming. They're all screaming. And somehow he doesn't see any of it or hear any of it. It it just defies logic. The whole scene is where the movie starts to fall apart because the whole thing is absurd. Right, and as if that's not enough, they manage to escape Stratos, get his gun, and Nikki, in an attempt to save Mark, clubs Lambus with it. So just to recap, Haley Mills hits someone over the head with the gun, cracks their skull, and confirms that she heard it crack. And believes that she has killed this man. Yes. I can buy that she believes that she's killed him because she's obviously never done anything like this before. But I just can't wrap my head around that this is like America's sweetheart. And and maybe this was the equivalent of, you know, Miley Cyrus at the VMAs sticking her tongue out and wearing the outfit and, you know, shaking around. I don't know. Maybe Disney was trying to help her shirk the child image. I think that they were trying to make this into an action film and they just did a poor job of it. Because other than the fact that it's sort of insane to think that she would have killed this man by hitting him on the head with the butt of a rifle, they waste so much time, like, checking on Lambus. Like, is he breathing? Is he dead? Is it? I don't know. But all I know is he wants you dead. Just go. Right. Just go. If Run. you're not going to double tap him, you got to go. You got to go. Like, well, now, of course, there was no such thing as Zombie Land when this film came out, but we now know. The double tap. You double tap and you go, or you just run. Double tap, it's always best. But, I mean, it just, this is another scene that drags on. They don't fight him for very long, but then you're going to waste time standing over him going, he may be dead. Is he dead? I don't know. Is he breathing? Is he this? Is he that? I, I half expected her to go, Mr. Lambus, and like start tapping him with her foot <laughs> to see if he'd come back. No, and then they also waste so much time arguing about, no, you go back to your aunt. No, I'm coming with you. No this, no that. And this is where, aside from the fact that the film has completely gone off the rails, it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable because we know that Haley Mills was around 17, 18 when she filmed this. We have no idea how old Nikki is. I thought she was maybe supposed to be like 15 or 16. So I kind of thought, I, I mean, the crush on Mark is totally plausible. Sure. But the reciprocation is what I'm not sure about. Yeah, because he's definitely not a teenager. I mean, he's got a full-time job. He worked at a bank. You could tell he's an older gentleman, older by, you know, he's in his mid-20s, but, like, he's a little too old to be with a teenage girl. Right. And that's where, you know, to go back to this scene where she clubs the guy with the gun, 
I feel like they were trying, you know, if they're going the route of the action movie, they are trying to make her like a Karen Allen. And, well, I keep comparing it to Indiana Jones, but this was before. <laughs> this was before. <laughs> I, it's kind of hard to, to believe sometimes. But if you are trying to make her, I mean, they're certainly not trying to turn her into a Bond girl. But if you are trying to make her the sidekick heroine, then you should have established that she's older and you should have made her more mature than she is when she's been acting like, I wonder if I'll ever have what they call allure. So you know she wants to appeal to him and that's where it comes off as a child with a crush and they just should have left it there because now it's established that she's going with him. They get to the temple of the cats and they spend the night there and she's like, oh, you can sleep on my shoulder. And it's it's perfectly innocent. I mean, he does yeah. kiss her eventually, but this sounds like, oh, you went to go spend the night in the temple and you canoodled the whole night. It's as innocent as can be, but... We are borderline inappropriate here. Yeah. Um, and now you, you, the story starts to unfold as to what exactly these jewels are. And honestly, like, I'm all for Mark trying to clear his name, but I was more excited about this when I thought they were going on a treasure hunt. For sure. When I found out that this is what the jewels were and this is why he was trying to get them back, fine. I, I give you a lot of credit. That's a great length to go to clear one's name. But the movie became so much less exciting when it was no longer a treasure hunt. And not just the treasure hunt, but you also lose the whodunit element. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know at this point that Stratos is the bad guy, but because we don't know exactly what the motive is, because he's still talking about the stars and, and the moon spinners folklore... You don't know if there's a bigger bad that he's working for, which it turns well. It, it's not. It's, it's not really a big bad. Him. He's working with someone, but he he's not a henchman to to the brains of an operation. No. So then you lose the who done it too, and it makes it far less exciting. I have to talk about this scene in the Temple of Apollo. You mentioned it before. They're sort of cuddling up, and he tells her it's the nicest shoulder he's ever slept on. Lewis, sometimes dead is better. This <laughs> is almost like uh, it's almost like Pet Cemetery. Because when Stratos, again, films that came out way after this, when Stratos goes into the temple with his gun to go find them because he can hear them, these cats basically just start bugging out. And attacking him. And apparently on the Isle of Crete, cats are bad luck. So he wants to avoid them. So he runs away. But the cats are like so menacing that it actually ends up being more laughable than it is scary. Right. Because you're not expecting these cats at all. They look so terrifying. It is comical. It's too much. Honestly, like you expect this from the cat from outer space. And even that is not a vicious cat. But this just comes completely out of nowhere. And it doesn't really go anywhere either. Because yes, Stratos goes away. But it doesn't help Nikki and Mark escape. Because they still remain in this temple. Right. 
it doesn't pay off the way Stratos with this astrology obsession doesn't pay off. That doesn't really lead to anything either. It's like they focus so much attention on it for no reason. Right. And if the cats would have would have served as a distractor instead of them being the cause of him running away. I just think it's so weak that that that's what spooks him. I mean, to your point with the astrology, I guess he is kind of superstitious, but it just should have been, okay. the cats chased him out the front door. So now you guys can escape through the back. And instead, they decide to canoodle the rest of the night and they're found by the consulate in the morning, which makes so much sense. The quote unquote consulate, but not really. I actually love this. I love the false sense of uh, of security with Gamble. Oh, see, I didn't trust him from the jump. Well, I don't under like why he just arrives makes no sense. Why he just walks into this temple where this man came from makes no sense. They don't ask him how he found them or why he was there. He's just I'm with the British consulate, and they went, "Oh, okay, great." No, they did ask him why he was alone. And he was like, I like to come and see the sunrise or see it before anybody else is here. They do try and cover it, cover it with a throwaway. But what baffles me is he's like, hi, I'm by myself. Come with me. But leave your gun here. Yeah. And they go along with it. Because his, his wife is a nurse, as he tells them. I love the twist here with the false sense of security. I do like the fact that he is Stratos's partner. Clearly, Stratos sent him in. I can't get them out. I'm afraid. I can't of, get past the gas. I'm afraid of Felix, but you can go get them, and you're British, so they'll trust you. <laughs> I can buy all of that, and I actually do like this whole black market sale aspect. Mm. While I wish this had remained a treasure hunting film, I do like the fact that. There is something at stake here. And Stratos, is he doesn't just have these jewels to have these jewels, right? Because he's not a pirate. And there is something bigger, and there's a bigger picture. And I think that it indirectly fleshes him out as a character more because you know that he fronted the money to build or to buy this home and turn it into a hotel on the island. And his family has gone on to say, we know that it's been done basically with illegal money, but you don't know what it is. And I think sometimes films of this era was just, oh, he's the bad guy because illegal things. And like, that was all they had to explain. I like the fact that we are sort of seeing a little bit more of what it is that he does, how he makes his money, what his motivations are. This much works. I think as much as I would have kind of respected and had more fun with the adventure aspect. Because now, to me, this is like a, this is not even, a, it's not even a heist. There's like no adventure to this at this point in time. I agree. Let me ask you this, though. Do you think that it takes away finding out this information now? Or would you rather have found it out about Stratos up front and have Mark be the untrustworthy character that he's going after it? Because as the audience, we're kind of left in the dark. Yeah, um, no, I think they kind of did it the only way that they could. The minute this was no longer a treasure hunt film and there was nothing supernatural, there was nothing with the astrology, I think that you kind of had to buy Mark as a protagonist here. So it's not like an apple dumpling gang where you don't know until you really get about halfway through the movie, what Tim Matheson, uh, Matheson's character is all about. In the way that they fleshed it out in Apple Dumpling, 
work perfectly. I don't think you could have done that here. I, I think that by by virtue of they were trying to jam 10 pounds of stuff in a five-pound bag, I, and really that's what they do here, I, I don't think it would have worked. Yeah, I think they kind of wrote themselves into a corner here. Because right. I think it would have made Mark a more interesting character, but I don't know that you could have landed the story plane that way. No, because you, you have to give us somebody to root for. And yeah, that's Nikki. But trying to put Haley Mills as the leading lady in what Disney was trying to devise as an action film up to this point really hasn't worked. So you got to give us something else. See, it's very interesting that you say that, though. And I, I was going to save this for the end review, but I think now is a good time to bring it up. Obviously, Disney loved Haley Mills. She did a ton of movies. We've been saying it and saying it. So it's no mystery why she was cast in this. But if you took her character out of this movie, she's not the main character. This entire movie would happen without her in it. She literally does nothing to move the story forward. Other than get Mark a first aid kit. Right. And because the wound keeps opening up and he keeps bleeding out anyway, that doesn't even matter. It buys him just enough time. It's really what, what it does. It buys him just enough time to keep going. But I feel like Mark is smart enough where he could have made himself a tourniquet. Like, if if it would have been more of a survival film after that, where he's in the hills in Crete, and he's trying to keep himself alive, and he's making his own bandages, and he's, you know, doing everything he can to solve the mystery, but not be found, that would have worked out better. She's... I'm not going to say she's weak, because she's not, but at times... She's a little too damsel in distressy. Right, but I'm not even saying that that's a fault of the character. I'm just saying that you don't need her to tell the story because even when they end up on the yacht, they all get there anyway. She's just there. She was just the first one there. Exactly. All right, so he gets drugged, this is Mark, by Cynthia. And when they are taking him away, rather than get an ambulance to take them to the airport that's going to get them to Athens to the hospital. Now, of course, Nikki and Francis, they've been reunited. They have no idea that this is just a setup to get them out of there so Stratos can sell these jewels. The fact that they send him in a hearse was hysterical. That is funny. That lands much better than the windmill scene. For certain. Um, I like that you get an Alice in Wonderland reference with yes. Madame Habib. I thought that worked. But Madame Habib has now gotten Haley Mills intoxicated and she's got a cheetah. She just has a pet cheetah. Because like, why not? Yeah, well, this seems like something out of the hangover at this point. <laughs> um, and she gives her booze basically to mellow her out because she believes that he's that she's just hysterical as she's going on and on and on about these jewels and this person and Stratos and Mark and we were shot at and we were in a temple with cats and like she just finds her to be hysterical and she gives this to her to calm her down comedically it does work I think that whole thing sort of lands the cheetah I mean I guess 
I guess they have to show us that Madame Habib is sort of exotic and offbeat and a little different, and I don't know. She totally reminds me of Captain Nemo. So you got Captain Nemo, or Nemo? I got Magica from DuckTales. <laughs> the hair, the <laughs> accent. Aesthetically, yes, but I'm talking as far as the eccentricities. Yeah, definitely reminds me of 20,000 Leagues. So Stratos arrives. He hears Nikki sneeze in a closet that Magica put her in, Madame Habib, and he starts struggling with her just in time for Mark to arrive with the authorities. And the authorities go to arrest Mark. They go to arrest the person who led them to the yacht, who drove the boat to get them to the yacht when Madame Habib goes arrest that man they arrest or at least try to arrest the person that brought them there and she's like no you fools the other one I actually like that I love her delivery I love everything about it I mean it's funny enough but if the authorities had arrived on a separate boat and were not brought there by Mark that lands a little bit more right as like a just-in-the-nick-of-time rescue. And then, hooray, the movie's over. It just ends so abruptly. And it's kind of like, and they all lived happily ever after. The end. Right, because they're just waving from the yacht. We did not talk about, though, because this movie does shift tonally once they're getting to the yacht, that, you know, again, they're trying to, Push Haley Mills as this action star now. Not only did she club a guy with a gun, but she steals a boat that she she magically knows how to operate to get out to this yacht. And we didn't talk about the savage harpoon fight with Stratos. Oh, yeah. Stratos throws a harpoon at Mark in the water and leaves him for dead after he tried to run him over with the boat. I, I think that's a pretty action-packed sequence, though, the way that he's trying to run him down with the boat. Yeah, but he makes, like, three passes. That's the thing. The it si- drags. It just drags. It, drags. it drags. You go after him once. You miss. You throw the harpoon. You think he's good. To You think you got him. We're moving on. Go sell the jewels. Make your millions. My argument is that the harpoon is innovative for a Disney weapon. We've not seen it before. We've not seen it since. Correct. Uh, except for Ursula, but that was a trident, so... Mm, different, different different okay um let's start talking about casting characters here um Haley Mills Nikki Ferris I like Haley Mills in everything I've seen her in and I don't think she did a poor job in this movie I just think the character as you pointed out is sort of useless and it's not Haley Mills's fault but this character is sort of just there. And she doesn't really thread the needle for me. I completely agree. Um, once you get past the first act, I, I mean, you know, like I said, the, she serves no purpose to the story. But them trying to make her work as an action hero didn't work. And you can't really get past the first act with her because, you know, they do the whole bit where she's crushing on Mark and they have their their scene where he explains who the moon spinners are and she's fascinated with this idea and he calls her a romantic. 
that's the Haley Mills charm that we've come to know and come to expect. And then she goes up to the room and she's trying different hairstyles to make herself appear older because Mark is older and this is where it gets uncomfortable, like we Mm -hmm. said. Once you move past that wistful scene with her character, they have no idea how to develop her and what to do with her. Peter McEnery plays Mark Camford. I buy this actor and this character in an action movie. Definitely. He looks the part. He's kind of got that savvy, good-looking, James Bond sort of mystery like mystery about him kind of aloof yeah i 100 percent buy it and i actually do like this character a lot and i wish as you pointed out i wish that we would have seen more of him just surviving in kind of that james bond or indiana jones sort of role yeah not to keep comparing because again it came out later but Yes, if it focus this this movie would be completely different and I'm curious to see what the book is. I'm wondering if he is the main character and they tried to shift it to Nikki being the main character just to get Haley Mills in as the name. This would have worked so much better if it was action hero saving his damsel in distress in the process instead of her continuing to pursue him. Mhm. Especially because we didn't really get to talk about this yet. She's We've established that she's younger, but she's so innocent. Let's call the police. Let's call the police. You have to go to the police. You have to get medical attention. It's just such a naive way of looking at the situation when he realizes that he's going to get himself in trouble if he goes to the authorities. So apparently in the book... Nikki is not traveling with her aunt, and she is much older. So I guess Disney tried to change this story by using Haley Mills, making her younger. But I think we can agree that was probably an avenue that really didn't work for this story. Right, because she's always the one to pursue him. Right. And it makes her come off as clingy. Yeah. A little too much so. Whereas if she had just kept, you know, stumbling into these situations where he had to rescue her. I mean, I don't want to paint her as that much of a damsel in distress and paint her as a weak character because I do appreciate that they made her, you know, think for herself and do things as out of character as it seems for Haley Mills. They did they did make her club him with a gun they did get her on that boat and while that doesn't necessarily work I'd rather see her doing you know having these strong female characters traits than just being the damsel and just being rescued but it would have worked leaps and bounds better for Mark that way Mm -hmm. Eli Wallach plays Stratos I I think he was really good I think he was really good in this movie. I thought that he was tactical. I thought he was calculated. I thought he was menacing. I thought that he was off the deep end enough, though not so much to the point that he was comical. And I really like the actor, and I really like the character in this movie. Yeah, he's he's a great, hardened villain. Joan Greenwood plays Aunt Frances, 
And I like the maternal figure that she is for Nikki. You don't really know what Nikki's family situation is. You just know that she's traveling with her aunt and they're very, very close. Um, which makes it all the more startling when they're just like, we'll find her, go to bed. When Nikki has now been missing for like two days and she's like, yeah, okay. At first she, at first she protests. And then when Stratos takes like every man in town to go find her, she's like, I'm going to go up and have a rest. See you later. Yeah. To me, you want to talk about the damsel in distress. It's, it's her especially because they don't balance out the reactions. Like you said, it's either she's going to go rest in bed and let the boys go take care of it, or she's crazed out of her mind. You have to go find her. You know, that desperate old Hollywood cry. Um, I wish they would have balanced her out a little bit more, especially because for as little as we know about their relationship, she just does seem like the cool aunt who's trying to culture her niece because then she says offhand, oh, we'll go to Cannes on the way back. Yeah. Sure, like you do. Final thoughts. Uh, Final thoughts. This is not the worst movie that we've stumbled across in a roulette. Not the worst by far. No. But... Nothing at this point is going <laughs> to be as bad as Meet the Deedles. If there's something worse, I'm scared. Uh, I don't. Well, Fuzz Bucket wasn't a roulette. We no, did, we did that to ourselves. But those were both pretty bad. Th- this is not. It doesn't even come close to how bad those films are, because this film goes beyond. Well. You can see what they're trying to do, but they fail. No, this is not the case at all. It's very clear what they were doing, and it's not a bad film. I just feel like they squandered the opportunity to really make a great film because there's the heist and the treasure hunt elements there, so you think it's going to be this great adventure story. You know, part of me was excited to see an older Haley Mills to see what she could do without that childhood innocence. And instead, I think that's probably the biggest fail of the movie is because they tried to teeter her on both sides of it. And you just needed to make a clear cut decision. I think if she was an equal partner to Mark, it would have been leaps and bounds better. So is this a terrible movie? No. Am I going to watch it again? Yes, maybe, but it's not the first thing that I'm going to go pick out. And does it hold up? No, I actually think this might be worth a remake. So I don't disagree with that. Um, I think that given a fresh coat of paint, I think that there is definitely something there. I mean, you know Disney can make these movies, right? I mean, you've seen it with National Treasure. I'm going to a- I'm going to answer a question and then I want to give my final say on it. The question does it hold up? The answer is no. Um because we just spat, you know, spat off a bunch of films, specifically Indiana Jones, that I do think without having actual concrete evidence i think this inspired a lot of those films oh i'm going down a rabbit hole after this but the problem is 
all of those films were better than this. Yes. So, you know, you could sit there and you can say, well, without, you know, without Treasure Island, there's no Pirates of the Caribbean, right? But Treasure Island is such is such a good movie. Treasure Island is, I'm unpopular opinion, it's better than any of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. The Curse of the Black Pearl is close, but it's better than any of them. I think you said that when we reviewed it. What separates it is that they did it first. For as much as we, you know, we have pirates up on a pedestal, but that's what makes Treasure Island so great is because they're the original. Right. So with that being said, I like the sets. I like the costumes. Um, I think that they're trying to pack a lot in. I think the pacing is janky. Some scenes move way too quick. Most scenes drag on for way too long. I think the movie's better the second time you see it. Um, and I do think that is absolutely worth a watch. But is it going to be in my rotation of films to go and rewatch anytime in the near future? No. And if I'm being honest with you, what was sort of startling to me, and I think that this sort of tells you what Disney thinks of this movie. Every film, well, I thought every film, that was on Disney Plus or anything that had gotten a release on DVD or Blu-ray, they are so careful with restoration. Yes. This looks like I'm watching an actual film reel that like, I found in my father's garage from his childhood home. It doesn't look great. It's pretty muddy. Particularly everything that they shot at night is pretty, or to look like night. But, I mean, there are lines on the screen. Like, I've seen, like, like limited release VHS tapes. I'm going to give you, I'll give you an example. And I'm the only person who's seen this VHS tape because I owned it. In the late 1980s, the New York Islanders put out a video called The Pride of the Island. It was like a, it was a regional VHS tape. It was about an hour long. It was about the history of the New York Islanders and specifically about their dynasty because the dynasty had just ended. So it was about the, hey, we just came off of four straight Stanley Cups. We lost to Edmonton going for our fifth. How do we, how do we get back there? And it was like the new generation of the Islanders with Pat LaFontaine. That I owned because a video store in town was going out of business and we bought the VHS tape. Years later, it showed up online. I think the Islanders actually put it on their website. But you could tell it was like on an old chewed up VHS tape that they ran like a VCR into a dazzle and then captured it through maybe like Final Cut and they just uploaded it to the website. That's the kind of like really janky copy that this looks like. And I was sort of surprised, like we know the Disney vault is real because we've seen the building. Are you telling me this, the, like the master copy of this film looks like this? I, I don't know. It just doesn't look clean. You know, what's really funny. I mean, looking back on it now, 
I, I'm realizing. Yeah, I mean, like I, I thought about it as we were watching it. Like, oh, this this kind of looks muddy, like I said. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize how bad it was until you're like really unpacking it here. Because the first time we watched it, we did it. The weather's getting warmer here. We had a nice movie night outside and we have a projector aimed at the fence and our, our screen is a sheet that Sean put grommets in and stretched taut and that's what we use. Great $4 movie screen. And it's much quicker than inflating a giant yeah. screen. It's quicker and easier. Uh, so I thought it was just because we haven't watched a movie outside in a while. And like it's dark, the fire pit, smoke, whatever. Yeah, you, like you think maybe your eyes are just getting readjusted to it. Exactly, exactly. No, but that projector has like a crystal clear picture. It didn't even really occur to me either as we were watching it you know, the second time on the regular TV. And maybe I was just too focused on like actually getting the notes down and trying to get the story beats just because there's just a lot of things that don't connect. Right. And I think you had told me in your research, you found out that this movie had bombed in the box office and they repurposed it as like a, like a, not a made for TV film, but it was a Sunday night movie. They did it in three parts, but that was only a few years after it came out so they wouldn't be reformatting that much if it was something like you know the sunday night movies of our childhood yeah it's a completely different resolution you would have had to have cleaned it up for then yeah but you know what though the apple dumpling gang albeit like 15 years almost 15 years apple dumpling was it was either 77 or 79 off the top of my head. I can't remember. Anywhere between 13 and 15 years later. But that was a made-for-television film. And that... Oh, wait, no. That one wasn't. Scratch that. It was that Ghosts of Buckley Hall that we saw. <laughs> oh my God. That's what it was. That's a ridiculous film that I'm in no rush to talk about. But that's a made-for-TV movie that, in, like, in terms of its clarity, looks a lot better than this. And I don't care that it came out 15 years later. It's a made-for-TV movie. This was something that was shown in movie theaters across the nation. Like, this should have been crystal clear. But we're interested in knowing what you guys have to say about the Moon Spinners. Have you seen it? What is your say? What's your review? Are you even interested in seeing it at this point? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, as well as a contest, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. Now is the time to book. I actually just last night 
uh, booked a trip for friends of ours. Uh, they're taking their daughter for their first for her first time. Uh, and I found them a great deal for August. Uh, Disney actually has a couple of good promotions running for the summer right now. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney trip, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets. We're at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, or you can email me directly at j.zelezi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. You know, at the end of this movie, Nikki and Mark teased that maybe we'll get married someday. Well, perhaps you're getting married this year. Perhaps you're finally getting married. Here we are in 2021. If you are, Kelly at Karma and Kismet has you covered. She does save the dates, invitations, thank you cards, table numbers, Disney-inspired or otherwise. Plus, listeners of the show get a discount of 10% with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. All of her designs are online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. And while you're over there, check out the really nice blog write-up that she did for us we were featured on the website and I mean I was it's I mean we've spoken to Kelly a number of times she's incredibly well spoken but I swear to God if you didn't tell me otherwise I would think that she had a journalism background the article like we're, we're humble people and and I was almost like in a good way I was almost embarrassed yes. by how good it was <laughs> Kelly has a series about becoming a Disney creator and uh she asked us some questions but I, I've the funny thing is that I've seen her blog so many times and I've seen other people on it it was weird it was almost surreal seeing us up there yeah but she did such a nice job and she said the nicest things and and we're just so appreciative Yes. So if you want to if you want to go read it, it's over on the website. Now back to the news here. We got an Eternals trailer this week. This is something that people in the MCU have been really excited about for a really long time. I don't know anything about the Eternals. All I know is that I saw a trailer and yeah, it looks like the MCU. It it does it I'm intrigued. I don't know much about it, but I'm interested. Ah, see, I disagree. I don't think it looks like the MCU, and that's what I'm excited about. I mean, yes, the costumes, sure. But what I'm super excited for is that it was directed by Chloe Zhao, who just won the Best Director Oscar for Nomadland, which also won Best Picture. So, I mean, you know it's going to be great just based on her credentials. But what I think is so cool is that we really haven't seen a Marvel movie like this in a long time that has such dramatic cinematography. When you think about the past couple of things, like, or, or even just, you know, Taika Waititi is great, but Thor takes place in space. It's mostly CGI. I mean, they do a couple of practical set builds, but you don't have those. The landscapes are all CGI. Same with Guardians of the Galaxy, particularly the second one. That was heavy CGI. And for things like Iron Man, Spider-Man, even Captain America, we've seen what New York looks like on film. So what I'm excited for is these big sweeping landscapes because even though Star Wars is set in space, they do a great job of shooting out in the desert and, and taking places that we know and putting it into the film. Well, see, and they do some of that in Black Panther, but a lot of Wakanda. Okay, but a lot of Wakanda's CGI as well. But I think like this is in terms of cinematography, this is probably the closest 
Black Panther is the is the best comparable of anything in the MCU. But what do you think of the trailer? I mean, it it doesn't really answer any questions for me, but I'm intrigued. I'm interested. I put it to you this way: I'm more interested in this than I have been in. I've been a little critical in the last couple of weeks about the MCU stuff that has gone on to Disney Plus and how I'm not really getting excited for a lot of things. I'm more excited for this than I am about anything going to Disney Plus right now in regards to the MCU. Yeah, I'm I'm more excited for the aesthetic than I am the actual story because you said it doesn't really explain anything. In fact, what it does do is it asks the question that everybody wants to know, where you been? These are the Eternals. Everybody keeps harping, just based on what I've seen on social media, everybody keeps harping on where were you, why didn't you help the Avengers? They blatantly call that out in the trailer. They do. And say now, you know, why now? We're, we're going to find out the why now. So I think that's what I'm most intrigued about. Unfortunately... You know, you, you always try to keep it light and chipper and you always want good news. And it isn't always that. Um, this is a rough one. Yeah. Samuel Wright, the voice of Sebastian, passed away today at the age of 74. Um, not that old. Um, they no. haven't they haven't said what happened. Um, this is still only broke a couple of hours ago, I think two hours before we sat to record, actually. So this is very fresh news. It's very sad. Um Obviously, The Little Mermaid means so much to so many people. I mean, we've waxed poetic about Waking Sleeping Beauty. And what that film did to sort of really save Disney animation, it's such an iconic character that this is a... It's a devastating law. I mean, listen, he's human... Sebastian's a cartoon character. Let's just call it what it is. Samuel Wright is a human being, and he's got a family. But in terms of the Disney scope, this is a truly a devastating loss. Especially because even though it was Howard Ashman's idea to make Sebastian Jamaican with the wrong casting, it would have fallen flat. Or it wouldn't have landed in a comedic way. He was so perfect this one cuts deep for me because Little Mermaid is my fave, so I'm um, I'm pretty bummed about this. And um, Josh Gad is just so good with his words all of the time. Yeah. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but he put it up on Twitter, basically saying, "You paved the way for all it of was us." Instagram. Instagram paved the way for all of us Disney sidekicks because he was the one that was really at the start of the Disney Renaissance. So, in only a way that Josh Gad could say it, and far more. Uh, eloquent way than I can even paraphrase it because I, I couldn't even get the website right. But but it, <laughs> he go said, go and go and see it. Yeah, he said uh, you paved the way for a dancing candelabra and you made a snowman live and and we owe you so much because you paved the way for us. It, it was really nice. Back to some happy news because we know the parks are reopening. We're I think we're basically once we get Disneyland Paris reopened, I think we're there. I think we're done. Um. They shared the map for the Avengers Campus at Disneyland. Full map. They showed some of the treats from Pim's Test Kitchen. Um, I mean, some of the adult beverage treats. Hey, oh! I can't wait to get back out to California and see this. Yeah, we were. I mean, we were gonna go to 
the D23 Expo. Yeah, we should have been there in, what, three months? Yeah. Almost three months to the day. Don't worry. We'll get the next one. We'll get the next one. But that will be probably the next time that we're out there. We have our uh, our Disney World trip planned for this November, which I think actually now would be a good time to introduce the official date now that we know of the monorail with monorail bar crawl. Yes. Sunday, November 14th. Time, TBD. Starting hotel TBD, although we'll probably will start at the contemporary. It, it's all TBD right now. Just make sure that you are uh, keeping up with the social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. As we get closer to the dates, we will let you guys know. And you know, we did do a giveaway on the last monorail with monorail. And we are going to do that again. But if you want to win a prize, you don't have to wait quite that long. Because we have a giveaway starting with this episode. We have a Monorail Radio t-shirt. We have an awesome straw charm from Hidden Mickey Supply Co. And we have a copy of 101 Dalmatians that we're going to give away as well. Because Cruella opens this Thursday. We have our tickets in a movie theater. theater. Yes. I am so excited. Um, so all you have to do, follow that social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. When you see a post for the contest, and we will post for the contest, all you have to do is like the post and tag a friend. That's all you have to do. Oh, and follow us. You have to be following us. Uh, follow us, like the post, and tag a friend. As soon as you do that, you are automatically entered to win. You could do it on all of the social media, you get three ways in, whatever you want to do. Just do it, and you're in. Uh, you have until Monday, uh, May 31st. I, I forgot what month it was. Monday, <laughs> Monday, May 31st, that's Memorial Day, at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to get that taken care of. And uh, we will announce the show that will be released on Tuesday, June the 1st, the winner will be announced on that day. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Again, that Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. That's the social media. We're on TikTok as well. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And for links to all of it, you can go online to monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.